Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this segment, we invite you to join with us as we learn all about the limits of the human body and the human mind with our guest, fitness journalist and best-selling author Alex Hutchinson, whose latest book is called Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, you spent eight years working on this book. Talk to us more about the research that you did and what your goal was. Yeah, I guess it, for me, it all started as a, it comes out of my younger days, my interest as a competitive runner. I was interested in endurance because I wanted to know why I couldn't run faster, essentially. Um, and so it started as a very personal interest uh, and it gradually morphed into a professional interest because I, I became a science journalist and started writing about the science of endurance. And so it, the way the process ended up working is that I was, for those eight years, I was working as a, as a journalist for various you know, magazines and newspapers like Runner's World and Outside Magazine. And I was using that sort of career path as an opportunity to go around the world and meet the, the most interesting people I could think of or find uh, in the, in the, in the, who were searching for an understanding of endurance. And, to, and it became a much broader thing than just why can't I run faster, but more about the, the struggle for endurance, which I think is kind of a universal feature of, of life in, in a way. And tell us more about who you talked to and the studies you looked at. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there is a huge uh, sort of body of research trying to understand the way, the, the way the body works, and it's been going on for about a century. And just in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, there's been a shift away from trying to understand endurance the way we understand, you know, how a car works, just as a, a sort of the, the, the sum of how the machine works, and, and realizing that humans are different. That, that there's a brain, that we don't just sort of go out and try and run a marathon and stop when we run out of fuel, that there's this much more complex uh, system going on that's trying to keep us healthy. So the people that I was most interested to meet were this sort of newer generation of researchers who are reevaluating what it means to hit the limits of your endurance and, to, to, and, and arguing that it, that it really has more to do with what your brain thinks than what your, how your heart is pumping or, or, you know, how much lactic acid is in your legs. So there's a guy named, named Tim Noakes in South Africa and another guy named uh, Samuel Marcora, who's in Italy. Uh, and there's a guy named Kai Lutz in Switzerland. And there's also, of course, people in, in, uh, around North America who I uh, was lucky enough to go and visit their labs and, and chat with them and sometimes get wired up with, you know, electrodes and, and try out some of their experiments. So that was, a, 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 it was it, you know, as well as a, a good research experience, it was also just fascinating to see these places and meet these people and, and get into their labs. So how are these top athletes wired differently than the average person? Well, so the first thing I should say, because one of the big themes of my book is that when you, the limits that we experience, when you, when you push yourself to your breaking point and what feels like a, you know, a brick wall, a concrete physical limit, in a lot of cases, those are, those limits are imposed by your brain and that they're actually a little bit negotiable. And so it's easy to kind of push that a little too far and say, oh, it's all in your head. And if you believe you can achieve anything you want. And of course, that's not true. So the first thing I will say is that Elite athletes, if you, if you look at the people at the Olympics, they are gifted with tremendous uh, physical talent and they've put in, you know, a decade or more of incredibly hard work to hone their physical abilities. So they do have, you know, depending on the sport, you know, bigger muscles or, or stronger hearts or whatever the case may be. But the, the, the interesting thing is once you get to a place like the Olympics, everyone has those traits and there's no lab test 
yet devised in the world that can tell you which of the marathoners at the Olympics is going to be the one who wins the gold medal. We don't really understand from a physical perspective what separates the best from the almost best. Instead, it's the, the mental characteristics that seem to, to make the difference. And, and there's a lot of different mental characteristics, but among them is the ability to, to, to push a little closer to their absolute physical limits, to tolerate discomfort for a little more, and to, to you know, be motivated and present and, and focused on achieving their best. Is it your sense that most professional athletes have a good sense as to what the limits of their performance uh, are? You know, it, I, I think there are surprises even at the very top level. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a track fan, of course. So I, I've been even just in the last few days, there were big, some big track meets over in Europe. And there was a woman who set a new world record in the women's steeplechase. The old world record was 852 and she ran 844. So that's an eight second improvement on the world record, which is, you know, it's astounding. It's ridiculous. And after the race, she was astounded. She, she, no one, she wasn't planning to try and run that fast. And her coach was astounded, but she also said, it felt so good. I think there's even more in the tank. So I think even at that level, there are surprises where, you know, things go right. And it's not necessarily, uh, just that they, they, you know, ate the breakfast or whatever. Sometimes they're just in the right headspace. They're, 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 they're not putting limits on, on themselves in a way that they normally would. So I know I, I certainly had some experiences where some of my best races came where there was a, you know, something going wrong with the timekeeping. So I didn't know how fast I was running. So I wasn't saying to myself, oh, Alex, you're going too fast. You better slow down. So, so I think even at the, even at the top level, of course, the top, top athletes are really in tune with their, their bodies. They're really, I mean, m- mindfulness is a kind of buzzword, but, if, but they're very self-aware. They're very non-judgmentally aware of what's going on in their body. So they're not saying, ouch, that hurts. I, this is a disaster. I better stop. They're saying, I'm, I'm fully aware of every sensation that I'm feeling and what that means about how long I can continue. But even at that level, there are still surprises. And at the start of the book, you open it up with talking about the four-minute mile and the history of that and how that really helped people to realize that a lot was possible that they didn't think was possible. Can you talk to us a little bit about that story for those who aren't familiar with it? Yeah. So, so for starters, Roger Bannister, who died earlier this year, unfortunately, but after a long and productive life, he, he ran the, the first sub four minute mile in 1954. And it's, it's become sort of a, uh, I don't know, somewhere between an allegory and a, and a Rorschach test where people see it, they, they look at that story to prove whatever the point they want to prove. And I guess I'm, I'm no different. But th- there was certainly some some talk leading up to that or some some sense that four minutes was a, a barrier that just wasn't going to fall. The, the record had been close to four minutes for more than a decade. And there, and there was, you know, experts saying that, no, humans really can't run a mile faster than four minutes. That's just not possible. And so once Bannister did it, the interesting thing is that a bunch of other people followed really quickly. And if you if you look through some of the, the self-help literature, which I did while I was researching this book, it's actually pretty funny because you find these you know, extraordinarily tall tales where they're saying, oh, 300 people broke the four-minute mile within a year of Bannister doing it for the first time. Uh, and, and the argument they're making is that it was really a mental barrier. And once Bannister showed it was possible... Uh, it became much easier to to follow. The truth is not quite that spectacular. The truth is that four people followed within a year of of Bannister's uh, record, and the 300th person didn't do it for another, uh, I guess it was 25 years or so. So the idea that it was just a mental barrier is not is not quite right. 
but it, there's no doubt that, you know, thousands, for thousands of years, no one had run a four minute mile. And then Bannister did it. And immediately other people started to do it, including a guy named John Landy, who'd been very close. He'd been six times uh, within a second or two. And he, he did it about three weeks after, or I think it was six weeks after Bannister did it. So something about Bannister doing it unlocked his ability to do it too. So I think it's a great story or a great sort of illustration of the, of how both, you know, on a personal level and a societal level, we can set, we sort of set barriers and, and they become, or we set expectations of what's possible and they become barriers in a way. And once they're removed or once they're, someone shows that you can get past that barrier, it can be powerful. And I think it's an allegory of what we, what we do to ourselves on a personal level in a lot of cases, thinking about, I can, I can do this much, but I don't think I can do a little bit more. What kind of an impact does something like hydration have on one's ability to, you know, go that extra mile? Yeah, so there's a bunch of hydration. I would put in the category with with a few things, uh, uh, you know, proper nutrition and and hydration and, you know, uh, keeping yourself cool and not too hot. All these things have to be, if you really want to reach your limits, you have to get all those details perfect. But one of the interesting themes that I sort of that that I sort of noticed in researching the book is that when you talk about okay okay what are the limits how, like how does dehydration hold you back what you find is that we we run into uh, sort of what I would call warning signs before we hit stop signs so you'll start to get thirsty and feel like you should slow down long before you're actually in, facing any serious shortage of of fluid and same with nutrition, same with overheating. Uh, it, on a hot day, um, you know, y- you will slow down automatically, feeling like you should slow down long before you're actually hot. Like you, on a, if, put it this way: if you go out and run a marathon on a hot day, your pace will be slower right from the start of the race, which is before you've started to heat up. There's something in your brain that's already calculating: well, it's going to be hotter today. We should be more cautious. So. Things like hydration are really important, but it's also, uh, I think it's, it's interesting to understand that when we feel dehydrated, it's, it's often not, not that we're in physical danger. It's not that we're out of water. It's that our brain is noticing that we might become short of water in the future. And it's, it's sort of sounding an alarm in advance and saying, hey, whoa, let's back off. Let's slow down to make sure we don't actually hit that limit, which could be dangerous. So when you say that endurance athletes feel the joys of suffering, is that kind of what you mean, that they are able to see these signs that they're uncomfortable and then learn from them and learn, okay, maybe today's not the right day to push hard because my body doesn't feel right? Or do you mean it in a different way? I think there's a couple of things. So one one is that I, I think there's a connection to, as I was saying before, to, to, to things like mindfulness, to, to taking away the negative emotional response to some of these reactions. So if I, if I, you know, if, if, if I touch a hot stove, you know, I'm going to burn my skin, but I'm also going to have, you know, this, this surge of fear and, and, and discomfort. And like, this is a bad thing. I'm, and, and, and that is a bad thing. Like there's nothing good about touching your finger, touching your finger to a hot stove, but we often have a similar reaction to, let's say I, I head out on the street and start running. I'm going to get all these signals to my body that I should slow down. I'm going to be, you know, out of breath and my legs will start getting, you know, achy or things like that. And so for, 
for people who aren't used to that kind of exercise, it can be an, they, they'll get an emotional response to these signals from their body saying, this is, you know, this is a disaster with every, you know, we need to stop because, because my body is, you know, failing. And what people who become endurance athletes or who, who, who are, or even athletes in general, people who uh, are not even athletes, people who, who, who make exercise a habit and a part of their life, they learn to distinguish uh, you know, what's a disaster? You know, they, they learn to take that emotional content out and just say, that's a signal saying that I can't keep up this pace forever. It's no big deal. And in fact, it's a signal telling you that I'm working hard and I'm going to feel, you know, the associated satisfaction of having had a good workout when I finish. So they don't necessarily love the, the suffering, but they, they appreciate it as uh, an important part of a path that, that they know from experience is going to leave them feeling better for the rest of the day. Now, so that's, that's the sort of, uh, um, you know, the mindfulness message. I would say there's also um, something to what you said about <laughs> for some serious athletes, th- there is just a love of pain. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Sort of, what, what I've heard is, is the, the, the term is called benign narcissism, that it, it generally, it doesn't lead them, you know, to, uh, you know, self-harm or anything like that, but it's just, they love the feeling of pushing their limits. And I think, at a certain point, that's maybe that's something that can be cultivated a little bit. But I think also that's just a personality trait that the people who are out there doing Ironman triathlons every, you know, every few months, they're, they're, they're wired in a way that for some reason they just get a kick out of, in the same way that some people get a kick out of jumping out of an airplane uh, and, you know, with a parachute, obviously. But, but uh, there's a certain kind of sensation seeking that they, that they love the feeling of, of pushing their limits. And, uh, and that I think is what drives the more sort of competitive aspect of, of, of a lot of people for endurance sports. In a lot of competitive sports, running, bicycling, swimming, uh, you know, it goes on and on. You have cheering crowds or you have smiling faces on the sidelines. What kind of an impact do those things have on the competitor's ability to endure more? Yeah, this is a really interesting area for me. I mean, we can all sort of understand that if there's a cheering crowd, it maybe motivates you to push a little harder. But what it turns out, at least according to the researchers I spoke to, is that there's a much deeper link between your environment and how you're able to push yourself. And the best example of that that I came across is a is a really neat study by a guy in England who uh, he had a cyclist do an endurance test and he flashed subliminal images of either smiling faces or frowning faces on the wall in front of them. So just for 16 milliseconds at a time, which is totally imperceptible, uh, you don't even realize that there's anything on the wall. And the people who were shown smiling faces actually lasted 12% longer in this endurance test than the people who were shown frowning faces. And, and the idea here is that, and this goes back to what I was saying before about it's your brain that, that calls the shots. So when you, if you're doing this endurance test on a, on a bicycle, uh, and you reach the point where you finished, or where where you have to stop. It feels to you like you're stopping because your legs can't go anymore. You're like, I'm sorry, I tried as hard as I can, but my legs are simply unable to continue pedaling at this pace. But what the the sort of new brain centered version of endurance argues is, that's what it feels like to you. But actually, what's happening is your brain has concluded that you can't you, that 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 it's too hard, that the effort required is too great. You're, it's your brain's interpretation of those signals from your legs that matters. And if you're seeing the smiling faces on the wall in front of you, 
there's this sort of effect where if you see a smile, it just makes you feel a little bit better. This is a sort of well-known social phenomenon. Um, and so your brain is, is just in a slightly better mood when it's interpreting these signals from your legs and from your heart and from your breathing and so on. And so it, 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 you're more likely to say, yeah, I can keep going for another few pedal strokes. I can keep going for another minute. And so to me, that's a, a really, really powerful demonstration of the influence that your environment has on you. Because if a subliminal smiling face can help you pedal 12% longer, think of the power of a cheering crowd, like you said, or just you know the, the interpersonal interactions you have with people around you or your physical environment. And this is not just when you're running a race, when you're giving a presentation, when you're studying for an exam, when you're uh, you know, going through life uh, in all sorts of contexts. This, the, your environment is setting the background on which your brain is interpreting these signals from the environment and from the rest of your body. How do people form psychological coping mechanisms when things get rough in any aspect of their lives? What have you learned from your research? Well, <laughs> one thing I definitely learned is, is you can be better. Right. <laughs> Everyone can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, some people are, 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 you know, really truly naturals at it. But even at a very high level, even if you're talking about elite performers, this is something that they they have to work on and that they work on continuously. It's not just like, you know, take that seminar on, on you know, coping sk- psychological skills and then you're done with it. Uh, and it's certainly so I was a, a, a national team athlete. I competed for the Canadian national team for a long time. Uh, and looking back, you know, in terms of things that I wish I'd known that nobody told me that I, or that I wish I'd taken more seriously, uh, it would have been do some formal training in things like motivational self-talk and take it seriously. Learn to identify the negative uh, thoughts that go through my head during stressful times Learn to, and, and, and refuse to accept them. You know, re- figure out replacements and, and practice them so they become second nature so that I'm not saying to myself, oh, this is too hard. You're going to fail again. Uh, instead, you're saying, I'm saying to myself, you, know, you can do this. This is, you, you've trained for this. This, this is, this is, you're ready for it. So I think that's a, that's a big lesson is that you, you can learn to, you can systematically and deliberately get better at these sorts of things. There's also, I mean, just on a, on a less formal way, there's, there's definitely some good evidence that uh, people get better at coping with unpleasant situations through exposure. So it's just like, it's like public speaking, for example, uh, even if you're not a natural public speaker, if you do it enough, you just get more comfortable with it and you're able to manage your, your anxieties and things like that better. And, and you'll, you'll become a smoother and better speaker. And the same thing happens with, uh, you know, running a marathon, for example, of course, if you train for marathons, you're going to get physically fitter. But the other thing is going, that's going to happen is you're going to be more comfortable or more capable of, of holding your finger in the flame for a little bit longer and managing those, you know, the, the discomfort and, you know, recontextualizing it, or like I was saying before, take the emotional content out of it. So you're not panicking. You're just saying, okay, my legs are getting really heavy. Uh, this suggests I should probably slow my pace down a little bit, but not this suggests you're, you're, you're going to die and it's a failure and everything sucks. Now that has to do with self-talk, but how do you quiet the voices of coaches or uh, other exercise instructors or people who, who are warning you in advance that this is going to be hard, this is going to be tough, you're really going to be feeling this. Um, I mean, I, I know, obviously, I'm not a, a professional athlete, but I know when I have been in PE or exercise classes and the instructor or the coach says something to that effect that it's going to be hard and this is really going to push you, in, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh boy, and I might not be able to do this. What am I going to do? How am I going to cope? 
How do you quiet that voice? Yeah, that's that's an interesting challenge. So, I mean, because there's sort of two answers that spring to mind there. One is, you know, find a different coach. <laughs> if, if that coach is, is, is telling you the wrong thing. Because, you know, it's really important to have a, uh, you know, a trusting and an open relationship with a, you know, with a coach or a mentor. And if, if, if that person is telling you things that make you, make you feel worse rather than better, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the goal. It's not great to think, Oh, I need to be able to brush off what that coach says, or I need to be able to ignore it. Um, so, so in, the, in one sense, you have to find someone who, whose approach works for you. Now I do think there is sometimes some merit in, kind of mentally callousing yourself in advance so that you're not caught unaware, you're not caught by surprise about how, how bad something is, is going to be. So I think that's probably, you know, when someone says, you know, when a coach says this is going to be really tough, you're going to suffer. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, they're trying to have you get your panic attack over with now so that it doesn't happen in the middle of the, of the exercise or the competition. Um, but if they're doing that in a way that, that, that ends up, you know, throwing you for a loop or making you less confident, um, you know, that's a problem. And, and, and it's something that you maybe need to, to talk about with them because you really need to be open to and trusting what your coach is saying. And if what they're saying is you're going to fail, if, that, if that's what you're hearing, then, um, you know, yes, you can learn ways of discounting what they're saying or, or overpowering it by saying, no, that's, I'm going to be okay. I can do this. But at the same time, like, it's like the smiling faces and the frowning faces. Like, if you're getting the verbal equivalent of a frowning face thrown at you, that's, that's not necessarily, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it, there, there may be better ways of approaching it than just learning to ignore it, you know. You have such vast experience as a runner, and I've run three half marathons in my life. And I know that's not much by, by your standards or by a lot of elite athlete standards, but I always find that I really struggle with mile 10, even more than mile 11. And I'm curious, how do you get yourself to go for those extra two miles or however long it is that somebody frames in their mind is the toughest part? Well, I'll tell you, if, if I knew the answer to that, if I knew a good answer to that, I'd have been a much better runner and I'd also be rich because I'd be selling the, 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 the formula to, to, to everyone. Darn. This is the kind of universal experience of, of any prolonged activity. It's that, the, you know, if it's a four lap, if you're thinking about the mile, it's a four lap race. The third lap is the longest and the hardest and the toughest and the slowest. And there's, there's some amazing research that shows uh, over the past century, they've analyzed the, the, the pacing patterns of every world record ever set in track races like the 5,000 meters and the 10,000 meters and the mile. And when they find that exact pattern, there's a U-shaped pattern where the slowest part of the race is the third quarter of the race. And so to me, that was actually really reassuring because it's like, oh, these are the world record setters. These are the guys who are the best runners in history on the best day of their lives and they're still slowing down in that third quarter. Like they think they can't maintain the pace and then they get closer to the finish and they realize, Oh wait, there's more in the tank. I can, I can speed up a little. So, so one thing I would say is don't beat yourself up <laughs> too, too much about it. That this is expected and know that your mind is going to start convincing you, trying to convince you that you're, you're cooked and you can't maintain your pace, but also know that what's happening there is, is fundamentally it's your brain thinking it knows best for you. It's trying to protect you. It's saying, man, this is, we're pushing pretty hard here. I don't know how much farther we can go. I think we should make it feel really hard to try and convince this fool to slow down. 
uh, to, just to make sure nothing bad happens. And then once you get to that last mile or the last couple of miles, you realize, oh, wait, it's going to be okay. I'm going to finish. And you're able to tap into some of that reserve that your brain's been protecting. But if this is a deeply wired thing. And there's actually some great research looking at like little kids having them run races at various stages of development. And what they find is by the time you're about 10 or 11, this, so when you're like six years old and you go run a race, it's, you know, you just go and sprint as hard as you can. And then you get gradually slower and slower. But when you're, by the time you're 10 or 11 years old, you're already displaying this thing where the third quarter is the slowest. And then you discover you have more energy left. So the secret is, yeah, as I said, don't beat stuff up. It's, it's a universal human trait, but fight it. When you get to that 11th mile and the half marathon, that 10th or 11th mile, remind yourself, this is my brain playing tricks on me. And you know what? I don't care if I slow down in the last mile, I'm going to try and push through this and not worry about the last mile. Because what you'll find is the last mile or two, you will have energy, even if you're convinced that you're going too fast. Another line of research that you've found really interesting is that of electrical brain stimulation. Tell us more about what that is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this, this is my, uh, my most cutting-edge self-experimentation. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a really remarkable body of research over the last five years or, show, or, or so showing that uh, you can alter your behavior by, with a fairly simple technique called transcranial direct current stimulation. And what that is, it's much simpler than it sounds. You can basically get a nine volt battery and, and disclaimer here. I'm not recommending this. <laughs> do <laughs> if, not try this at home. To do this. Yeah, exactly. Please do not try this at home. But it, it, it basically amounts to a nine volt battery and two wires connected to your two electrodes on your head. You run a weak electric current through your brain and it slightly changes the, the excitability of the neurons uh, that are that are where the current flows. And it makes them a little bit more, a little bit less likely to to fire. And so if you, if you put the electrodes in such a way that you change the, the activity of the part of the brain that's responsible for your perception of effort, you can make everything feel a little bit easier. So uh, at least physical things feel a little bit easier. And so for athletes, that's very attractive because if you're, if you're going out and trying to run at seven-minute mile pace, it will feel a little bit easier and so you'll be able to do it for longer or you'll be able to go a little bit faster for, for a given distance. Now... Uh, not surprisingly, since the, the you know it's very preliminary research, but of course there's a Silicon Valley, Valley company that has already uh, uh, put out a, a product, a pair of headphones that will deliver electricity to your brain. Um, and I did I did try that uh, a, a prototype of that product when I was uh, researching the book, just because I thought you know be a pretty cool uh, fin- finale to my book if I if I could say, hey, and I went out and set a world record by uh, <laughs> that would be really cool <laughs> electrocuting my brain, uh, you know, the end. Um, but, uh, well, what actually happened is I, I'm a, uh, a follicly, follicularly challenged guy. I don't have any hair and apparently my, uh, my scalp is uniquely tough because I couldn't make electrical contact, uh, with, with the electrodes. And I ended up just with big sort of divots in my head where I was trying to press these electrodes into my, into my scalp. So the, the, the takeaway here, I think is, uh, the research is pretty, I think, robust. I think this is a real effect. And so to me, this is another demonstration that, your limits really are dictated by your brain, not by your muscles. Because if you can just change, you know, change, uh, you know, the excitability of some neurons in your brain, and all of a sudden you can go faster and farther, that means it was never your muscles holding you back in the first place. But as for a practical piece of advice, uh, you know, personally, I would say, you know, give give it a miss. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, 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 certainly for now, until it's more developed. But even then, I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, what we get out of electrocuting ourselves 
for a, for a faster half marathon or whatever the case may be. How does your research relate to the everyday non-elite athlete who might be listening to our show right now? I think there's a lot of, of crossover. I think it's a lot more than I realized when I started out. When I So 10 years ago, when I started thinking about this book, it was really going to be a book about the physical limits of endurance. But as time went on, my, my, my understanding of what endurance was and, and, and what its significance was kept getting broader and broader. So that, like the definition of endurance that I ended up using is borrowing from some of the research that I spoke to was that it's the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. And to me, that, that doesn't just describe running a marathon. It also describes, you know, things like studying for an exam or, or uh, you know, going to a cocktail party with a bunch of boring people or whatever. <laughs> like, it's kind of a, a, a universal trait of life. And, and really, one of the one of the surprising details that I, that I stumbled across, just looking at, I, I spent a lot of time looking through the, at the history of our understanding of endurance. And, and probably the most important exercise physiology lab of the first half of the 20th century was the Harvard Fatigue Lab at Harvard. It was a really, really influential lab. And what I didn't realize is it started out, it was located in the basement of the Harvard Business School. So exercise physiology started out as basically a subset of business studies because they were interested in productivity. How do we get more out of ourselves to achieve more, uh, you know, as, as, as workers and as, as business people? So, so I think, uh, you know, it, it's not that I, that I think or that I foresee uh, people at work electrocuting, electrocuting their brains for, for greater performance. But I think understanding uh, that the limits we set for ourselves uh, and our perception of those limits, the, the, the self-talk, the, the things we tell ourselves have real physical effects on our ability to, to, to carry through and, and, and succeed. I think that's, a, that's an insight that's really valuable, not just in the gym, but, uh, but in a lot of areas of life. Alex, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what's your nobody told me lesson? What is it that you've learned uh, in the, in this life or researching this book that nobody could have told you about, that you really had to learn on your own and that you wish you'd known? So I, I mentioned a little earlier that I really wish I had taken the the role of the the mind more seriously when I was a competitive athlete, that I think it could have made a big difference to my to my performance. And that, you know, I wish I'd known that at 20 rather than at 40. Um, I already said that. So, so let me, let me say one other thing is that I also in, by understanding the role of the mind in, in, in dictating physical limits, one of the sort of secondary effects is that I wish I had taken more risks uh, that I, I ended up, you know, I used to sort of, I raced against a lot of Kenyans and the Kenyans are the best runners in the world. And one of the things that they do I, you know, not to generalize, but one of the things that many Kenyan runners do is they race all out from the gun. They go out and try and win every race, even if that means blowing up. And, they, and, and if they do blow up, they don't worry about it. They say, okay, today wasn't my day. Uh, I'll, I'll try again next week. Whereas I tended to be much more risk averse, just always running within myself, always deciding, I think I can run this pace today and that's what I'll try and run. And what I've realized in sort of understanding the brain's role in setting limits is that I was setting my limits. And so surprise, surprise, I always came in right at, right at the limits that I had set for myself beforehand. And so I think I was constraining myself from, from maybe setting higher goals, failing sometimes, but also maybe occasionally really exceeding my goals. So that's, you know, nobody told me that by, by being so cautious and measured and, 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 and uh, what I thought was 
being smart about it that I was actually kind of holding myself back and I should have taken more risks. I think that's excellent advice. And Alex, how can people connect with you online and on social media and where can they buy Endure? The easiest place to find me is probably on Twitter. My handle is Sweat Science, uh, all one word. Um, I do have a website also, alexhutchinson.net, that uh, that has a little more background. And uh, Endure is available, uh, you know, not as, as they say, at fine bookstores everywhere, uh, <laughs> you know, including Amazon. And, and right. Hopefully at bookstores near you. All right. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed the conversation. We enjoyed talking with you. We've been talking with fitness journalist and best-selling author Alex Hutchinson. His latest book is called Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And again, he can be found online at alexhutchinson.net. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Nobody Told Me. 